One of the things that makes Psalm 119 difficult to preach is the very thing that makes it a wonderful resource for pastoral care. Uh, the overriding theme of Psalm 119, as you know, is the importance of the Word of God in the life, the daily life of the believer. Each of the 22 stanzas uh, supports this general theme, and these stanzas do that by bringing forward different things in your life, different topics, if you will, to explain to you how the Word of God relates to those topics. And the psalm is filled with these topics that help us see how the Word of God relates to each and every area of our life. Now, as I preach and teach through Psalm 119, I can take the topics that the author brings forward to support his argument uh, that the Word of God impacts every aspect of the Christian life and, and choose which one of those topics that has particular pertinence to you, you who come to Sun Valley Church. That's, that's the, the blessing of teaching and preaching through Psalm 119. The author of Psalm 119 gives a platform to address what I think today, in today's verse, which is 94, I think one of the most important, although most misunderstood concepts of the Christian life. That is our view of God. Modern day evangelicalism has confused our view of God to the point that most Christians do not grasp this basic but very important aspect of their relationship to Him. How ought we to relate to God? Verse 94 addresses that. Many contemporary authors, pastors, and churches, because of their misunderstanding of this most important relationship, and because they're desperate for readers, attendees, and money, say whatever they need to say to secure their ambitions. Or they just flat out don't understand doctrine. They teach that God is kind of a genie in a bottle. And when you get in trouble, you rub that bottle and poof, out he comes and he helps you. Or that Jesus is an addendum to your life that you just tag on and when you get in trouble, he shows up. He's kind of like a personal trainer, Jesus is, or a personal assistant. And when you need assistance or training, you know where to go. So we know, and if you don't yet, you will by the end of the sermon know, that biblical Christianity is drastically different than that. I want to read for you verse 94, at least part of it, and then launch into what I think is critically important for you this morning. I am yours. Stop right there. That's all we're going to cover today. I am yours. The psalmist was acknowledging that he was not his own, that he was God's. Paul picked up on this because he knew Christ, because he knew the Old Testament, because he understood who God is. And he says this to the Corinthian church who was struggling to relate to God as they should. He said this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The meaning, of course, of Psalm 119, verse 94, and 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, 
is crystal clear. You are not your own. <laughs> as much as you think you might be your own, if you're in Christ, you no longer are your own. You've given up your rights when you've come to Christ. You've no longer hold claim to your life. We've been bought with a price. And this is, of course, a massive shift from what many in the modern church are promoting as Christianity. So let's take a look at this. I am yours. Let's think first of the truth of God's ownership of those of us who are in Christ. The truth of God's ownership. What makes an owner? What makes you an owner of something? Uh, there, I think there's three possible ways that you can become a rightful owner, and I want to review them for you. First is this. You can become an owner by creating something through creation. If you were to buy a, a kite kit from Amazon and put the kit together, uh, you would be owner because you created this kite. If you built it out of stuff in your garage, you'd be even a more proud owner of that kite. So ownership creates somewhat of a, I mean, creation makes somewhat of an owner. And it's clear, of course, that God has made mankind and everything else in the universe. He's made it. So it's his. He's the owner, right? But if Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 were focusing on God's ownership because he created us, he would have said it differently. Another way you can become an owner is by supply. When you're responsible for supplying everything necessary for a life, you would think you have some claim on that life, right? This is how we think of our children. Uh, we have supplied life in a sense to them. We certainly supplied food, clothing, and shelter. We introduce them how? This is my son or this is my daughter. This is how we, mine. I, I have some thought of ownership in this child's life. I make decisions about their education, their friends, their diet at least until they turn 16, they're ours, right? In the same way, we can argue that since God takes care of everyone, he supplies their needs, he owns everyone, right? Everyone breathes the air that God has supplied. Everyone eats the food that has grown from his earth. Everyone is warmed by his sun, cooled by the night. God sustains life, so he owns us, right? Because he supplies. But if Paul were arguing for God's ownership of us on the grounds of his supply, he would have said it differently in 1 Corinthians 6. What did he say? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Purchasing something is another way to own, right? <laughs> this is how we, this might be the first thing in line for all of us. First thing that comes, well, I bought it, it's mine. Right? This particular approach focuses our attention on Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 6. We are God's property primarily because he bought us. He paid a price. Paul believes that this approach to ownership is the most motivating approach to obedience because it establishes beyond a shadow of doubt that God owns you and me if we're in Christ. 
In order to move our obedience from duty to delight, Paul chose to remind us that we were bought at an infinite price. Paul's strategy focuses on the blood of Christ. God's own, God owns us because he bought and paid for us with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without spot or blemish we read of in Scripture. Those thoughts, the fact that the God of the universe sent his son to die for us, spilling his blood even though he was sinless, he was precious and spotless, I think pass over or pass through our minds with way too much ease because we're so used to hearing it, aren't we, in the church? But think about what actually happened to secure your pardon. These truths should wake each of us out of any spiritual slumber that we might be in, no matter how deep it is, and cause us to rush into the presence of God who owns and loves us with much joyful thanksgiving. Friends, we have such an advantage over every other created being, including angels, who do not know what it means to be redeemed by the blood of the precious Son of God. They certainly, angels at least, comprehend much, but not this. It says, Peter said the angels long to look into this and understand, but they don't. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ that was spent through intense pain and crushing distress. We know what that means. And if it is true that God owns us, what are the implications of this? What are the implications of God's ownership? He purchased us with his blood. What does this mean? Well, I want to ask you some questions to get you thinking biblically. Are you a servant or a slave of God? Servants are hired. Slaves are owned. Servants are free to choose whom they will work for and what they will do. There's autonomy there. Uh, they can maintain their own personal rights. Slaves, on the other hand, have no freedom, no autonomy, no rights. So are you a servant or a slave of God? How do you think about it, American Christian? Contemporary Christians, for the most part, would say that they're servants. They can come and go as they please. They can serve or not serve. And they still think they're gods. And they still think they're Christians. I'll take salvation, but I'm going to pass on this lordship thing. And herein lies the problem. What is your view of God? What is your view of your relationship to this God? All throughout most of our English translations of the Bible, we come across the word servant, right? In the New Testament, it shows up 125 times, servant. It's translated from the Greek word doulos. You see that on the overhead, doulos? That's the word from which our English translators have written servant 125 times. Amazingly, the Greek word doesn't mean servant. It means slave. There are five different words that mean servant in the Greek language. None of them are doulos. <laughs> doulos means something unmistakable. It's reserved for one purpose, to communicate complete subjugation, complete subordination. So when you heard read this morning in Matthew 
from our reader, servant you've done well or servant you've done poorly, the word is actually slave. One might ask, rightly, why then do our English translations substitute the word servant for slave if in fact the word means slave? Well, you could, you could figure this out fairly quickly if you thought about history, couldn't you? I think it's easy to understand. Even as far back as the Geneva Bible or the original King James translation, the idea of slavery was losing popularity and everyone was becoming uh, resistant to the concept of slavery. It was odious to most people. Even back then, people began to believe that God made all people equal and no one should be owned by another. Slavery has been a stain on American history and so the idea of slavery is repulsive to all of us. We don't want to read about slavery. It's repulsive to us. We shy away from it. And guess what? The translators shied away from it. It wasn't politically correct. It was loathsome. It was a general put off. So when they came across the word doulos, they translated it servant. Hence, sending the American church, modern Christianity, down a path of confusion about their relationship with God. There are a few translations that have since corrected that, but very few. Evangelistically speaking, not too many people would respond to an invitation to slavery, even if it were a good master. In fact, the overwhelming majority of churches present Jesus in a much different light, which I communicated earlier. He's someone who might be able to make your life better. Just come to Jesus. He's certainly not presented as he is in the scripture as Lord, Master, King, who needs to be obeyed without question. That would offend us. No, they say, he's a genie in a bottle. He's an assistant. But the Bible presents Jesus as the exact opposite of that. He's master, owner. King, Lord, God. We heard this morning read, God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases, including with you and me. Anyone who wants to relate to him must come to him as his subject, his subjects and his subordinates, or they're not coming. To think that you can receive the offer, of, the offer of salvation and reject the requirement of slavery is bad doctrine and foolish, eternally foolish. First century Christianity clearly understood the concept of slavery. They were surrounded by slaves. Many of the people who received first, the letter of 1 Corinthians were slaves. They lived in Rome, <laughs> the Roman Empire. There was way more slaves in Rome than there were free men. All the Jewish Christians who knew Christ, who had a personal relationship with him, were well familiar with the idea of slavery. You remember their history. 400 hard years of slavery in Egypt. They understood slavery completely. They understood what it, mean to, what it meant to follow Christ as his slave. Either Jesus is Lord or he is not Lord. Christian friend, 
Scripture says that he is. Scripture says that he's Lord of his church. He is head of the church, which means he's Lord of every Christian in his church. He is the master over every true believer. Master, capital M. He's not offered in any other way in the Bible. Let me give you five parallels between biblical Christianity and first century slavery. First of all, there's an idea of exclusive ownership. First century Roman law stated that slaves were the property of their owners and they could do with the slaves anything they wanted. Hired servants could choose their employers and their hours could be whatever they wanted. They could quit if they were tired or displeased in any way. Not slaves. Even though each of us were born as slaves to sin, God purchased us away from that slave owner. And it was purchased at the price of Jesus' precious blood. Now we are under the exclusive ownership of Jesus Christ because he purchased us. Out of slavery to sin, out of slavery to the world, out of slavery to the enemy, into slavery of God. So this idea of exclusive ownership. Secondly is the idea of complete submission. If you were a first century slave, you were not only owned by another, you were at their every beck and call. And you couldn't say, uh, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, sorry, I'll, I'll see you in the morning. When the bell rings at 8, I'll show up. No. That's not how it worked. The slave's sole duty was to carry out the master's wishes. The slave's law was the master's word. I remember my dad in our home many times um, joking with my mom, and he would bow and say, your wish is my command. That's how slaves actually acted and believed. In the same way, the believer's submission to Jesus and his word is the mark of a genuine Christian. Complete submission. So if you refuse to submit to Christ and his word, you cannot call yourself a Christian. At least not a biblical one. Paul said in many places, he communicated this truth, but let me read it from a familiar place, Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Lay down your life. This is how you ought to live, Paul told the Roman Christians, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. This is what you must do, Paul said. So are you a slave or a servant of God? The next is singular devotion. Speaking of the five parallels between biblical Christianity and first century slavery, there's exclusive ownership, complete submission, singular devotion. As difficult as it would be to live in the first century as a slave, it was relatively simple. All a slave had to do was focus on his master's wishes. There were no competing voices. Uh, this is a lot like biblical Christianity. We are to have no competing voices for our affections between Christ, us and Christ. We must maintain a singular devotion to Christ. Jesus said this as clearly as he possibly could in Matthew 12, in Mark 12, rather. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. What else is there? <laughs> singular devotion. Being owned by God makes life a lot less complicated. We simply follow orders. When God says to serve one another, we do that. When he says to love one another, we do that. When he says to pray for one another, guess what? We do that. 
If you're not doing that, what does that mean? When he says to sacrifice for each other, we do that. So if you were to have an employment evaluation from God, how would it go this morning? Are you serving adequately? Are you giving adequately? Are you loving adequately? Are you following orders? The New Testament is full of orders. Are you doing them? Well, I'm too busy. I got a family. Got a job. Oh yeah, I forgot that verse. Love one another unless you're busy. See, being owned by God clarifies what our daily lives ought to be about. We are no longer our own. We have a master. The next is total dependence. Roman slaves were completely dependent on their masters for all of life's basic necessities, and the masters supplied those things. Food, shelter, clothing. It's the same of us who are owned by Christ. He, he promises to meet all of our needs. Philippians 4.13, David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. God supplies our needs. Why? So that we can focus on serving and pleasing him with all of our energy. We shouldn't spend all of our energy making sure that my estate is in order. All of our energy making sure that my retirement is going to be cush. God is the one who supplies the needs of his slaves. So that we can work for his glory. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says we don't need to worry about what we will wear or eat because our Heavenly Father knows our needs and He will supply them. And we, you know, scurry around making sure of this, making sure of that, anxiety over this and the other thing. And all the time, missing out on opportunities to be obedient to our Master. And then finally, personal accountability. The fifth parallel between first century slavery and biblical Christianity. First century slaves were accountable to their masters for everything they did. Everything. How they spent their time, how they spent their resources. The only thing that mattered to the slave was the good pleasure of his owner. Have I pleased my owner today? If the owner was pleased, the slave would benefit. Likewise, Christians today are accountable to God for all their actions, all their time, all their talents. You've been all given talents. You heard the reading this morning. Some ten, some five, some two, some one. Doesn't matter what you've received. What matters is what you do with what you've received. Is your aim to please God with your talents? In Romans chapter 14, verse 12, in 1 Corinthians, Paul said that each of us would, be, would give an account to God for our lives. One day we will stand before God and give an account. See, true Christianity is not about adding Jesus to your life. Instead, it's about devoting yourself completely to him above all else, above all else. It demands dying to self and following the master no matter what the cost. To be a Christian simply means to be Christ's slave. Jesus said this in Luke 9. By the way, if you don't like the idea of lordship, stay away from Luke 9. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, you want to call yourself a Christian, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's how it works. 
Those are Jesus' words. Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and God, what do they do? What do my sheep do? They follow me. They don't follow their own agenda, their own plan, their own program. They follow me. Why? Because I'm the master. That's why. I have a, another section underneath that, main point number two, called Benefits of Slavery. I'm going to skip that other than the following. I need to get through to our response to God's ownership, but I want to mention briefly the benefits of slavery. There are benefits to slavery both in the first century and as Christians today. Um, one is his strength. He, he promises his strength to those who follow, to those who he owns, his salvation. How about that one? Um, his peace, his joy, etc. All throughout the New Testament we're given benefits for following Christ. So it's not like this subjugation thing is joyless, duty, can't wait till this is all over program. No. There's supply. There's <laughs> benefit. Extreme benefit. Let's look now, though, at the response to God's ownership. And we'll, you'll see some of the benefits here also. So, does God own you? Does God own you? Have you responded to God's ownership? Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you've, if you've claimed Christ, if you've believed that Jesus is the Son of God, died for your sins, if you've embraced his lordship, you will be saved. What does it say? Jesus is Lord. That's, that's the key element there in that promise of salvation. Have you done this? Have you turned over the lordship of your life to Christ? Have you transferred title to Jesus? Is he your Lord or are you still running the show? If there is a command you come across in the New Testament you don't like or you disagree with, do you ignore it? If so, he's not your Lord. And hence, he's not your Savior. You can't have one without the other. They're tied together by the one who offers the salvation. God. You see why this is such a critical point for Christians today to understand? The word Lord, Kyrios, in the New Testament appears 750 times. You know what the word Lord means? Master. Owner. When someone calls Jesus Lord, they are acknowledging that they are slaves. The Lord Jesus means I'm his slave. You see, Lord and slave are two sides of the same coin. If he's your Lord, you're his slave. You can't separate them. Charles Spurgeon said, when, you're, when you are your own, you have a fool and a tyrant for a master. When you are your own, you have a fool and a tyrant for a master. When you govern yourself, your burdens double and your concerns cloud your mind. Your strength is never enough. Your wisdom is always lacking. Are you sure you want that kind of a master? 
The wiser path, the only path, according to Scripture, for the Christian is to submit to Jesus' Lordship. A hundred years from now, no one in this room will be breathing. Not to be depressing, but no one in this room will be breathing a hundred years from now, not even the youngest. One hundred years from now, the only thing that will really matter is whether or not you submitted yourself to Christ well. Your finances won't mean a thing. Your fitness won't matter at all. Your status, your job will be long forgotten. The only thing on the table will be your submission to Christ. That's it. So what, what do we do about this? Now what? I'll just say it. Give yourself wholly to God. There's no other option if you want to be in glory with Christ one day. Give yourself wholly to God. You and I owe God for everything that we have and everything we are. Have we given ourselves up to him? Our highest honor will come from what we have given to God, not from what we have spent on ourselves. When you get to heaven, you stand before God and, and, and are in fellowship with the saints. We're not going to be talking about our great vacations in Hawaii. At all. It's, it's what we have done for Christ. Only what's done for Christ will last. The poem goes. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 was making arguments against sin... And part of his argument was that our conduct or our outer life is the barometer of our inner life. So if a person were to look at you, would they say slave? Slave. Eh, servant. Eh, their own boss. What's the outer life saying about your inner life? You see, our conduct demonstrates the reality of our conversion. When Christ bought you, he paid for you in full. It wasn't like a down payment. And he's, you know, got this payment plan. And someone still owns the lien on your life. Like you or the world. No. He paid for you in full. There's nothing left of any amount and if this is true, why is there so much resistance in the lives of Christians to self-denial? Why is there so much resistance to self-sacrifice? Why are we resistant to long hours of labor in the field? We're slaves. Why is there any lack in any church to fill spots of service? When that service is designed to encourage you. Why are phone calls being made to plead with people to fill necessary roles in a church filled with slaves? I guarantee you one thing in the first century Rome, the, the owner didn't go up to the barracks of the slaves and go, anybody want to work today? Anybody up for a few minutes out in the field? It's going to be a cloudy day. It's going to be nice and easy. No. That's not how it went. 
Friends, if our relationship with God is make believe, then I understand the resistance to sold out service. If this is all a farce, if we're playing a game, then okay. Let's get our kids out into the world and hope that no one's watching and let's keep playing the game. But I hope I know you well enough, Sun Valley, that's not what you want. But friends, if this is real, if Jesus has in fact paid in full the price for your pardon and you are now owned by him, it changes everything. Real redemption demands real holiness. Really being owned by God requires really serving, really giving, really loving. So glorify God in your body is Paul's conclusion. You are not your own, so use your body for his glory. And that's a, when he says body, it's a summary of life. Use everything you are for his glory. How do we do that? You know, singing, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now, is fine. But the unfortunate reality is that's where it ends for a lot of us. It ends with words. And Paul, not Paul, the Apostle John in 1 John 3 says, real love is sacrificial love. It goes beyond words to deeds. Anybody can say they love Jesus. Most people do. The slaves serve him. So what do we do? We, right after we sang, my Jesus, I love thee, we sang all I have is Christ. And one of the verses there said, now, Lord, I would be yours alone. Which means I'm not my own. I'm his alone. I'm not sharing ownership with Christ and myself. I'm his alone. And, and live so that all might see the strength to follow your commands doesn't come from me, is what we sang. Oh, Father, use my ransomed life, my purchased life, in any way you choose, is what we sang. And we mean it. And I'm not going to ask for money at the end, so relax. I'm asking for your life, which is more important than your money. When it comes to your participation in church, friends, um, glorify God in your body means to participate. Here, for example, uh, be here more than you're not. Joyfully participate when you're here. Sing with us loudly and joyfully when we sing. Don't sit there and mumble. Pray when we give you an opportunity to do so. Read aloud along with us in the worship and the corporate confession. Don't sleep during the sermon. Do your part in the areas of ministry. Glorify God in your body. Practice it here today. 
Read your Bible, lead your family, love your wife, be a light in the darkness. Leonard Ravenhill said this, are the things that you're living for worth Christ dying for? Are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? You've been bought with a price. You are not your own, Sun Valley Christian. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Lord, this room is full of people who say, I am yours. My prayer is that that would be true. My prayer is that we would move from shallow words to meaningful practice. God, please, your Holy Spirit must move in us for these words from you, these scriptural truths that have been taught this morning find a resting place in each and every heart in this room. Holy Spirit, do your work, I pray and plead with you. Help us not to go out and flippantly toss these things aside and put them out of our minds as soon as possible so that we can go on pretending we're a Christian to our own eternal demise. God, have mercy on our souls. Draw us into a real relationship with our master and Lord, the one who spent his own blood, his own life breath being crushed so that he could buy us for himself. He could redeem us unto his own. God, I, I want a church full of redeemed Christians, purchased Christians who see themselves as Christ's slaves, who don't think they can share the ownership of their lives with themselves and God or with the world and themselves and God, but see clearly what the Bible says about God's ownership of their lives. Father, we know that's your intent. We know that that is the place of our joy. Please make it happen. In the name of our master, Jesus, amen.